So for the last three weeks, we've been in the book of Hebrews, which is addressed to a group of Christians struggling to stay the course of faith under very challenging circumstances. They've given up their social status and perhaps even their familial ties to follow Jesus. Some of them have been imprisoned, beaten, and robbed. They've become, to some extent, social pariahs, the object of shame and ridicule in the eyes of both the Jews and the Greeks. And this was not just like a bad year for the early church, right? This was pretty much the way of things for the first three centuries of Christianity. Christians were persecuted more than any other religious group in the ancient world, so much so that you can't even really read about the earliest Christians without reading stories of beheadings, stonings, being beaten alive, any other number of gruesome deaths you can imagine. I know this because my sons and I have a picture book about the saints. And my boys love it because it's full of pictures of snakes and lions and swords and fires. Now, thankfully, they can't read most of the words because they're a little bit PG-13. This is ancient church history, and it's heavy stuff. But when you can read the words, and you can sit with the weight of what following Jesus meant for the earliest Christians, it begs the question, how did the church ever grow? In light of such extreme persecution, why would anyone convert to Christianity in the first place? New Testament scholar and church historian Larry Hurtado addressed this question in a number of works, including his book, which is very appropriately titled, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? It's a long book title. One significant reason, Hurtado suggests, one reason people were drawn to Christianity despite all of the disincentives of conversion had to do with the nature and quality of Christian community. Hurtado calls the early church a unique social project in the ancient world, a contrast community, he says, that was simultaneously offensive and attractive to outsiders. It was intriguing, and that was powerful. Pastor Tim Keller, bless him, has distilled Hurtado's multiple writings by listing five ways that this was true, five distinguishing characteristics of the early church community. I'll list them briefly. First, Christians were the first religious group that was defined not by ethnic or even socioeconomic boundary markers, but by personal faith and allegiance to Christ. In other words, Christianity created a multi-ethnic faith family, and this was revolutionary. Second, Christians were known for practicing forgiveness and reconciliation. They abandoned the norms of their shame and honor culture in which they lived and instead chose to forgive their enemies, as well as to make clear paths for the penitent to return to fellowship. Third, Christians were famous for their hospitality to the poor and suffering. It was expected, of course, that people would take care of their own poor, their own families, their own tribe, but Christians practiced indiscriminate generosity toward others, caring for people regardless of their religious or ethnic affiliations. And this practice included care for the sick and dying, and that gave birth to what we now call hospitals. Fourth, and related to this, the church was committed to the sanctity of life. In a time when abortions were rare, but infant abandonment was common, Christians were known for rescuing babies from trash heaps and roadsides in order to care for them and to raise them. And fifth, Christians were known for their strange sexual ethics that asked everybody to play by the same rules. 
In the ancient world, women were expected to be monogamous, but men were not. They were free to exercise their social power for sex with anyone of a lower rank than themselves. But Christians taught that sex wasn't only about pleasure, and it certainly wasn't about power. They viewed sex as an expression of fidelity, and they required both spouses to practice monogamy in marriage. This divergent approach to sex also dignified celibate singleness as an equally legitimate option that men and women could freely choose as an expression of their fidelity to the faith family. The early church was a contrast community. It looked very different from the world around it. It was weird and offensive, for sure, but it was also attractive. It was a family that lived by its own logic and in doing so changed the trajectory of Western civilization. You could say that the early church looked a lot like Hebrews 13. They were a people committed to brotherly love, to caring for strangers and the disenfranchised, and to stewarding everything from their bodies to their bank accounts in accordance with this call. And I think one of the first things we can do when we approach a text like this as modern readers, modern Christians, is we can say, thank you. Lord, thank you for the faithful men and women throughout history who lived this vision together despite all the challenges that they faced. Because the truth is, before anything else, you and I are beneficiaries of Hebrew 13. We are the product of centuries of faithful Christian witness and faithful Christian mission. We are the children of this ancient family, the church. But the second thing we can do when we approach this chapter is we can ask, what does it look like for us to live these words? As beneficiaries, as children of the church, how do we embrace this legacy of brotherly love in a way that changes us, but that also changes the world around us? So that's what we're gonna ask this morning. And to answer that question, we actually have to back up and ask another one. To understand the how of brotherly love, we first have to understand the why. And that's found at the end of chapter 12, which says this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Brotherly love is rooted in the worship of God. We love each other because we love him and because he loves us. This is an important starting place because if we think we're supposed to love other people, even other Christians, because they're lovable, we will be very disappointed. It's easy, I think, especially in the church, to create a false expectation that because the church is family, it will always be nice to me. Or that because we all love God, that life together is somehow going to be easy. But if you've been part of the church for longer than, I don't know, five minutes, you know that this is just not true. Loving each other is hard work because we're not always very lovable. And that's one reason why the preacher here has to encourage the Hebrews to keep it up. Let brotherly love continue, he says. And when it's hard, remember that this is your act of worship. Actually, all of what we are called to do in verses 1 through 6 is about worship because the Hebrew Uh, the preacher to the Hebrews repeats himself later in verse 15. He calls our faithfulness to this vision the fruit of lips that acknowledge God's name. 
Do not neglect to do good, he says, and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. To worship God is to love the brothers and the stranger and the prisoner and the poor and the people who are in marriages that aren't yours. And I think to some extent it depressurizes our relationships when we can step back and realize the way I treat other people is actually between me and God. It doesn't matter how other people behave or whether they are deserving or whether you feel particularly loving in any given moment. Your love for other people is your sacrifice of praise. Now there's a flip side to that. Our love for others is rooted in our worship of God, and yet there is no worship of God apart from love for others. Christianity is a social reality. You can't really worship God all alone in your room. I mean, you can, and of course you should, but the Christian life, and by extension Christian holiness, is lived corporately. It's personal, but it's never private, as we sometimes say. Theologian Carl Ellis says that biblical righteousness is actually four-dimensional, and I have a picture that they're going to put up to show you. It's a very complex picture. Okay, thank you. Um, This might seem like a bit of a tangent, but just go with me here. So Carl Ellis says, imagine that Christian righteousness is like the four panes of a window. The top two panes have to do with piety, and that's like our prayer and devotion, our engagement directly with God, and that's what we usually think of when we talk about holiness. The bottom two panes of the window have to do with justice, and that's the social dimension of our faith, how we engage with others. And then there are two more dimensions, which are the personal and the social. So you've got personal piety and social piety, private devotions, public worship. And then you've got personal justice, and you've got social justice. More on that in a minute. And Carl Ellis would contend, you can tell me if uh, this maps onto your experience as well, he would say many of us have been taught to only pay attention to one pane of the window, personal piety. We tend to think of our personal holiness as kind of the whole picture of Christian righteousness. Now, I first heard this when I was in seminary, and it resonated very strongly with me because growing up in the church, all I really thought about in relation to how I was doing in my faith was whether or not I was doing the bad things. Was I watching bad movies? Was I listening to bad music? And, you know, was I having my quiet time? Now, these are valid things for a teenager to care about, for anybody to care about, but it was also pretty individualistic, and it was also fairly disembodied as well. And so, of course, it left me with a deficient understanding and experience of righteousness because it left me with a deficient understanding of the gospel. There is more to the good news than personal piety. And what we've seen, I think, especially in recent years, is that uh, as many in the church have caught on to this, as we've rediscovered the other uh, ancient but somewhat neglected pains of the window, and especially the social justice dimension, There's been a huge hunger for and a huge emphasis in the church on social transformation, which is also important, but also not the whole story of the gospel. And unfortunately, because we're reactionary, right, and because we haven't been able to see these things as part of a coherent whole, what has happened in the church is we've just slashed a line right through the middle of this window, and we've settled into opposing camps that we call left and right. Are you tracking with me? 
So Justin Gibney is the founder of what he calls the AND campaign. This is seeking to address, to undercut this sort of left-right divide in Christian civic engagement. And he puts it like this. Do you advocate for social justice or family values? Do you support women or are you against abortion? Do you love the poor or do you believe in personal responsibility? He says, don't answer these questions, or at least not in the way that they're asked. They are based on a false premise and thus create a false dilemma for Christians. This is what happens when we allow the world to frame the questions and the issues for us. We end up choosing one of two wrong answers or rejecting one of two right answers and losing control of our public witness in the process. You can take that down. For, thanks. The good news is that it doesn't have to be this way. And in fact, Hebrews 13 is evidence that it wasn't always this way. The church has always been called to practice personal piety and social justice, to embrace sexual purity and care for the poor. And we're called to understand that these things are related because every body matters profoundly to God. To worship him means to honor him in your body and to care about the way other people's bodies are treated. And I think when we understand this, when we embrace the expansiveness of Christian righteousness in its personal and its corporate dimensions, then we begin to be the kind of community that is both offensive and attractive to the world around us. And this means, brothers and sisters, that we shouldn't expect to fit neatly into any political ideology or camp. We should expect to be a little bit weird, a little bit homeless. But this allows us to live instead as God's people who can speak prophetically to the world and its respective camps. This is not easy. It means that if we're really going to be faithful as the church, that everyone is going to be a little bit mad at us sometimes. I'll give you just one example that really encouraged me. In 2015, Pope Francis wrote a papal encyclical, which is like a pastoral letter to the whole Roman Catholic Church worldwide. It's a big deal. And this was a letter about climate change and our Christian responsibility to care for the environment. And some people in his church didn't like that because they thought it was too partisan. But in that same encyclical, Pope Francis alluded also to the Christian call to defend the dignity of unborn life in the womb, upwards of 10 times. And other people in his church didn't like that. And I thought, wow, he's actually undercutting this ideological divide in a way that we need to rediscover. This is our heritage. Being the church and being in the church should challenge all of us. What this means is, if you are looking for a church that simply ticks all of your ideological boxes, that just makes you feel really good about all the things you already believe and all the things you're already doing, then you're not really looking for the church. Not in its fullness. Because the church is a transformational community. It's supportive, yes. It's invitational, yes. There is grace for when we get this wrong. But the church is also calling us to be an otherworldly kind of people, a contrast community that is always inviting us into greater holiness, into the fullness of the gospel in its individual and its corporate dimensions. It's hard work. Now, I promised that I would ask the question, how? How do we live this vision together? 
What does it look like for us to embrace the call of Hebrews 13 here in 2022? Well, the answer, of course, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't do any of this in our own strength, and we don't do any of this on our own. We won't do it perfectly. We'll never do it perfectly, and that's why part of our social piety is to repent and confess our sins together every single week because we fail to live this vision, and God continues to give himself to empower us to live it again and again. But let me just share two themes, uh, two specific um, aspects that the Holy Spirit impressed on my heart as I was reflecting on this text this week. Two practices that I think run through all the specific instructions of our passage this morning. The first is a renunciation, something we need to put off and reject. And the second is a confession, something we must embrace. So first, the renunciation. If we want to learn how to love, we must reject a transactional view of human persons and relationships. I'll say that again. In order to love, we must reject a transactional view of human persons and relationships. We need to stop seeing other people in terms of what they can give us or what we can get from them. Now, this is not something any of us does consciously, I think, but it is something we are subconsciously being taught all the time. We live in a world that increasingly asks us to identify as consumers and to relate to everyone and everything around us as a potential product. Now, this can be as seemingly innocuous as wanting all of our activities to be fun and entertaining. It doesn't sound so bad, right? I love fun. But when fun and entertainment are the highest value, we are much less likely to invest in the difficult or inconvenient people around us, the ones who are easy to overlook or who can't repay us, as we heard in our gospel reading. Some of those people live in prisons right here in Greenville, right here in the upstate. Some of those people live next door to you. Some of those people live in your own homes. Consumerism can be very subtle but it also can be as insidious as objectifying or even enslaving another person. And I think this is where the love of money and the warning about lust and sexual purity overlap, because greed and lust have the same root. When we commodify other human beings, whether that's for financial gain or sexual gratification, we fail to honor them as our fellow image bearers, and we invite judgment on ourselves. And let me also just say that this warning doesn't only apply to extramarital relationships. Sexual purity also is a question that spouses must ask of themselves. Am I objectifying my spouse? Am I demeaning, using, mistreating, or commodifying the person I have vowed to love? We must reject consumerism wherever it might lurk in our relationships. But second, and this is in closing, here's what we can embrace. In order to live Hebrews 13, we can and must put on trust. Look at verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If we aren't going to use people, if we refuse to live primarily as consumers, then we'll have to trust God to actually provide for our needs. 
We'll have to entrust our longings to him, whether those are longings for financial provision or sexual fulfillment or intimate friendship. He calls us not to demand or to take what we think we need, but to offer those desires up to him and to trust that even if he asks us to live without them, he will still be enough. This is what it means to be content with what we have. It's to know that in our lack, God will never forsake us. This is what Paul meant when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He wrote that from prison. And the lead up says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the strength from which we can love others even when they aren't able to repay us. This is the strength from which we can stop chasing money or power or position or any other thing the world tells us we can't live without. This is the strength that we have to offer to a world that is simultaneously overstuffed and starving. This is the contrast community that God has called us to be. And with the call, he has given us the capacity. He has promised to be with us. So we can confidently say, the Lord is our helper. Whom shall we fear? And when we fear, when we doubt that this is the way we should live, and we will, we can remember our leaders, our ancient fathers and mothers in the faith, who treasured Christ above all things, even their own lives. We can remember those first Christians who were also challenged by these words and who learned how to live them, who counted all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as Lord. He was enough for them, and he will be enough for us too. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Let me pray for us. Well, Lord, we thank you for pouring out your very life for us and calling us brothers and sisters and for giving us your spirit that we might continue to live your common life here as your body on earth. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us each one what that looks like for us today. Would you expose the ways we are fearful of saying yes to you and living in obedience? And would you give us a deep sense of courage and the promise that you are with us, that you are our helper, and that you are enough. In Jesus' name, amen.